Uh, when things don't work right, it's extremely frustrating. I mean, it can be simple things like a recipe. You follow the recipe and, and you have it turn out and it looks nothing like the picture that you have on Pinterest. Uh, or maybe for you, it's, it's, you go to the washing machine and, and it just doesn't work at all. Or for me, it had happened this last Sunday. I got in my car and I turned the key and absolutely nothing happened. And I blame it all on Pastor Derek because he spoke on spiritual warfare so my car didn't work. <laughs> but here's the thing is that even though all it was in my car was a battery, is that sometimes when one part of a system doesn't work, it affects the entire system. And what we're going to learn today in our text is that Jesus, he came not just to impact people's lives, but to break up a religious system that just wasn't working. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you turn with me to John chapter 5, we're going to look at 13 very power-packed verses today. But as we set up, I want to just kind of just paint the picture for you. In verse 1 of John chapter 5, it, John tells us how Jesus went to Jerusalem for a feast. John doesn't give us the detail of which feast it was. But upon further study, we learn that there are three major feasts that Jewish men would go to. They were called feasts of obligation. It would be the Passover, it would be Pentecost, and the third one would be the Feast of the Tabernacle. And if you were a Jewish male that was 15 miles around Jerusalem, it was your obligation to go into the city to be able to celebrate those feasts. Now here's the thing about Jesus, is Jesus didn't view it as an obligation, he viewed it more as a privilege, a privilege for him to be able to minister to his people, to be able to worship, and to spend time with them. So with that in, in our minds, follow along with me to John chapter uh, 5. Here's what it says. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a great crowd in the place. Look at verse 2, it says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which had five roofed colonnades. See, in, in Jesus' day, it was very cultural for the people to gather around these public pools or these public baths. And so they would have very much come to a place like this to be able to gather. And in fact, archaeologists have found a pool just on the outside of Jerusalem that very much fits this description that John gives us. It was a pool, it was a quite large pool that had five different patios, one on each side of a rectangle and one right in the middle that kind of split this pool into two pools. See, it's interesting, when I first read the text before doing any further study, for some reason I pictured it as being something small. But archaeologists and commentators agree that this would have been a very large pool, upwards of 20 feet deep, and those two pools combined together would have been the size of an entire 
football field. So it's quite a big um, pool. And something that's interesting here as well is that the scripture says that it's located in Bethesda, which means the house of grace. And we'll learn more about why that's significant a little bit later in our time together. But look at verse 3. It says, In thee lay a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. What does verse 3 say? It says that there is a multitude of them. If you're reading out of the NIV translation, it says that there's a great number of disabled people. If you have the New Living Translation, it says there were crowds of sick people. And I love the old reliable King James Version and listen to how it describes it. It says that there were a great number of impotent folk, blind and withered. What a great picture that it describes for us. But either way, as you look at the text there, it talks about how there were people that were blind, that were lame, that were paralyzed. And what do all three of those have in common? Every single one of them is an exterior type of thing, an infirmity. And as a result of their infirmity, one that other people were able to see, these people were treated as outcasts. They were pushed out of society for they were not normal. So the normal, acceptable people were in Jerusalem, but these that were blind, that were lame, that were paralyzed, were pushed to the outskirts of the community, to the outskirts of the city. And I don't know about you, but I know for me, it never feels good to be considered an outsider. But that's exactly what these people were. They were a community of outsiders. And even as a result of being outsiders, they found their own type of community. But the type of community that they enjoyed was one with paralyzed, with blind, and with lame people. All people that knew what it was like to be set aside, to be forgotten. And as I studied this passage, um, I just kept reading it, and God brought me back to a childhood lesson. And in in fact, it's the first fill-in on your outline this morning, and it's this. It says that the company that we keep can define who we become. And as I was growing up, I remember my parents telling my siblings and I that whenever you're at recess, when you're at school, be mindful of who you spend your time with. Because whoever you spend your time with is who you're going to become. So at school, if we were to spend our time with all the troublemakers, what would happen? We eventually would get into trouble. But if we spent our time with those that were achieving, that were trying harder in school, what would happen? Is they most likely would rub off on us and we would achieve more. And in the same way for you and for I, if we think about this idea, the company that we keep can define who we become. If we want to strive after Jesus, and many of you do, that's why you're here today, but you only spend one hour a week really focusing in your mind on these things of eternal significance, but yet the rest of the week you spend yourself, your time with others. Maybe for you it's at your workplace, and you really want to shine for Jesus in your workplace, but for one reason or another you seem to always gravitate towards those people that are gossipers. Who do you become? You become more like those gossipers. Or maybe you've been saying, you know, I really need to work on the language that I use. The things that I say, those choice nuggets of words that you certainly aren't going to say to Pastor Brad or myself. But as a result of the company that you keep, you find yourself saying those things rather than things of eternal significance. For it brings me to a great text in in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, that says, Bad company corrupts good character. See, you can have great character on Sunday, but if you don't have it the other six days of the week, who are you going to look more like? See, on the flip side, the antithesis of that verse comes out as Proverbs 27, verse 17, that says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. 
That's why he, we at First Baptist, why we champion mentor relationships. That's why we have an entire ministry dedicated to it. Because we believe that if you spend time with another person, as iron sharpens iron, spending time together in God's word, that company, good company, will make you look more like Jesus and less like this world. In the same way, that's why we challenge you in the fall, every single fall, to get into community groups. Because we believe that although we are a large church and there are many people here in three services, we believe that when you get small, when you sit down on somebody's living room couch, and you have an opportunity to be real and genuine and iron sharpening iron with one another, then our God does amazing work in healing and in changing our hearts. See, here's this. Notice this. In verse 3, do you notice that we don't ever catch any of their names? It says, in these lay a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. We weren't introduced to Bob the blind man. We weren't introduced to Paul the paralyzed man. No, these people were described not by their names, but by their circumstances, by their infirmaries. So in the same way, what about you? Have you allowed your situation? Have you allowed the stresses that you find in your life to define who you are? What if today, instead of me referring to you as your name, what if I referred to you as whatever it is that you struggle with? Maybe for you, I would have to say, you're known as the warrior. You're the person that's full of fear. You're the person that has a lack of faith. Maybe it's not a lack of faith, but you were so full of yourself that you would have to be described as the person that's prideful, arrogant maybe even. Or maybe it wouldn't be based on your heart, but maybe it's by your actions. Maybe we'd have to describe you as a cheater or a liar. See, if I go long enough, if we spend enough time on this subject, in one way or another, God will bring out every single one of our circumstances, every single one of our stresses. Could you imagine if that's what you were described by? If that's the way that you were introduced to one another based on your circumstances, not whose you are. See, but here's the thing. Here's the thing about who we are. See, we try to cover our infirmities. We try to cover all of our inadequacies, our stresses, our circumstances with this aura of saying that we have everything together. See, I could have walked up to any of you today before service. I could have shook your hand. I could have said, hey, it's so nice to see you today. How you doing? And every single one of us, I'd say 90%, let's not categorize everyone, but most of us, if I were to say, how are you doing? You immediately are programmed to say, I'm doing great. Life's fine. But if you were honest with yourself, if you took yourself a step back from your pride, you probably would know the stresses that you're running through. You would, would realize the emotional burdens that you're carrying right here and right here. And if I was able to take another step more personal with you, and I was able to ask you how you're doing spiritually, we're really good as Christians of hiding our spiritual ineptness with fancy church words, of churches and saying, praise the Lord, everything's great. But because we have this aura that everything has to be perfect, we cover it with these words because we don't want someone to know that we're struggling in our faith. We don't want someone to know that maybe we have some doubts with what's going on in our life. But we've bought into the lie that everything has to be perfect and nobody can know what's really going on in our individual lives. So why is it that I spend so much time on this one verse that says, in these lay a multitude of invalids that are blind, that are lame and paralyzed? Why do I spend so much time on your circumstances as well? Because it's so easy for us to look at texts like this and say, I'm not paralyzed. I'm not lame. I'm not blind. I can't relate to that. 
But if you were actually honest with yourself, you would have to acknowledge that many of us in this room today are spiritually blind, are emotionally paralyzed, are relationally lame. And now that we have that mindset, now that we're able to see that we actually belong in this text, look at what it says in verse 5. It says this, One man was there who had been there for an, as an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to, them, to him, Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? What I couldn't get over as I was studying this passage is 38 years in the exact same spot. I turn 38 in two weeks from now. And I can't imagine that my entire lifetime in the exact same spot day after day after day. And what I wrestled with was this question. Was it that the man couldn't move or that he didn't want to move? Is it that you don't want to change? or you can't change. See, the second idea that I have for you on your outline today is this, is that we can come to church to feel better and never get well. We can come to church to feel better and never get well. For you can come to church for 38 years and still be in the same place spiritually. You can be content in the mediocrity of religion, You can be content in the mediocrity of just going through the motions of cultural Christianity. But because you're so concerned of being comfortable, you're so concerned of not being challenged or questioned, you're so concerned in this aura of perfection that you're never changed. You can come to church for 38 years and keep going to the same sin over and over and over again, never changing which reminds me of the great wisdom that comes from the proverb, Proverbs 26, 11, that says, like a dog who returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. See, it's so easy to try to handle our stresses in our own ways. But God's word speaks into every stress, every circumstance, everything we find in our lives. The problem is, is because we're unchanged, the problem is because it's easy not to open up God's love letter to us, we try to handle it in our own strength. But when you you open up God's word and you pray and say, God, will you reveal your truth to this situation to me today? It's amazing how God's word speaks into every situation we find ourselves in. I love the question that Jesus asked the man. Don't miss this. Verse 6. Jesus said, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to get better? Now, there's a huge difference between getting healed and feeling better. For maybe you're here today and you've been dealing with some major health issues. And this might be a day that you feel better, but you're not healed. Jesus didn't ask the man, do you want to feel better? He asked, do you want to be healed? And sometimes we come to church so that we can feel better about ourselves. Sometimes we come to church so we can check that box off in our lives, but we leave here unchanged and we never get healed. Sometimes the biggest barrier for your change in your life, it's not the pastor, it's not the church, it's not the outline, it's you. It's because you have your heart and your mind so closed up that the the way that the Holy Spirit is stirring in you can't make that distance from right here to right here that results in life change. 
See, here's the thing. When we look at that pool in Bethesda, that pool represented a place that was comfortable for that man. That pool was a place where he could be around people that were just as dysfunctional as he is. That pool was a place where he could be known, even if it was a place on the outside. This pool is a place where we can be known. This is a place where we can know other people. But if we're not willing to let ourselves out there, we too can be stuck on the side of the pool, never changed, and look the same way 38 years later as we did before. So let me ask you, are things not changing in your life because of the church or because of you? I don't know if you noticed, but as we're going through the scripture today, and if you look in your Bible, you'll probably see it or it's on your outline. We went from verse 3 to verse 5. I didn't skip verse 5 it's because, or verse 4. It's because in most modern translations, there is not a verse 4. We go from verse 3 to verse 5 in every translation except for the King James Version. It's not that there's a mistake in the scripture. It's that the the modern translators have have been able to look at some of the original manuscripts and realize that verse 4 was added after the fact. It was added as a point of explanation so that the reader could understand more of what's going on in the scripture. And so anytime you see in your Bible, like mine had a C as a superscript on there. Anytime you see that when you're reading the Bible, follow that rabbit trail down to the bottom or down to the margin. It's a great technique when you're studying the Word to help you to understand God's Word in its entirety. And so this explanation verse was there so that we as the readers can further understand the scene that this man and Jesus were in the midst of. And so I'm going to read the beginning of verse 3, which I've already shared, and then I'll add the part that was taken out um, of those original manuscripts. Here's what it says. In In these lay a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. They were waiting for a certain movement of the water, For an angel of the Lord came from time to time and stirred up the water. And the first person had to step in after the water was stirred was healed of whatever disease he had. Picture the scene there for just a minute. These people, the crowds of sick people, the multitude of invalids, literally were around that giant pool waiting. Waiting with bated breath, watching, hoping, praying that that water would stir every single day they did that. And the scripture says that it happened from time to time. We don't know what time to time means, but I would, I would venture to guess that it's probably longer than it was shorter in the intervals between when the healings were to have happened. Check out verse 6 again. It says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Do you notice that nowhere in verse 6 does it ever say that that man cried out to Jesus? No, Jesus took his hand and reached down to him. For our God knows our needs far before we ever know our own needs. Just as our God knew our need for a Savior before we ever realized that we needed a Savior. And it's so interesting to me because Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? Remember the place that they're at. Remember the name? It was the Pool of Bethesda. Remember what it meant? The house of grace. And it's in this moment for this man on this day that he was going to experience the grace that only can come through Jesus Christ. But I'm not sure his mindset. But I could imagine after 38 years, 38 years of waiting over and over and over again, being skipped over and not being able to get there, that he might have 
thought that maybe that's just his lot in life, to lay there and beg, to lay there and just be part of that community. Maybe you're here today, and life hasn't gone the way that you thought it would. Maybe you felt like the deck of cards that you've been dealt in your life isn't the deck that you feel like you deserve. And as a result, you've just bought into the lie that this is your life, that nothing will ever change. This is just the way it's going to be. And maybe our God is saying to you in a way that only he can, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be well? See, it's interesting that in the King James Version where where we read in our ESV, it says, do you want to be healed? The King James Version says, do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be made whole? And that's a profound question with even more profound consequences. For this man to be healed would mean that he would change his entire community. That everything he's known for 38 years would be completely different. And in the same way for you, for you to change, to not be the person that you used to be, might mean a different community. It might mean that life will be a little bit different than the way it was. But if you're going to change in the way that God is calling every single one of us to change, it will be changed for the better, for he will make us whole. I can remember as growing up, I grew up in the Catholic tradition, and and we were one of those families that actually went to church every single Sunday in the Catholic church. So we went every single week, and I was really good at doing the stand, sit, kneel, and doing all the motions that you had to do. But the problem was is that my heart was never open. I mean, even as an adult, sometimes I see those prayers, I'm like, wow, those are powerful. They weren't when I was younger. And as I became an adult, God just stirred in me a desire for more with him. And I remember when I gave my life to Jesus, like I'm talking, truly gave my life to him, life-changing, changed everything about me, how God just started to take one part of my heart, one part of my story, one part of my expectations and desires, and he started to take those from worldly things and make those into his things. And, And here's the thing, I didn't realize my need for being made whole until God started to make me whole. I didn't realize my areas of my life that were void of joy, that were void of of grace, until God started to shower his joy, until God started to shower his grace into those areas of my life. And and I only bring up my story because I, I would imagine that there's someone here today that you can relate to that. The only difference is that God hasn't made you whole yet, that you're still checking out this God thing and you're wondering, God, why am I here today of all days? Well, today, my friend, we're talking about how religion doesn't work, but a relationship with Jesus does. And Jesus wants to make you whole, and he's asking you, just as much as he asked this man, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made whole? I love what verse 7 says. The sick man answered Jesus to that question. He said, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another person steps down before me. And when I first read that verse, I just read this total victim mentality into the text. I read it like this. It's almost like he said, sir, there's no one to help me. There's all these people here, but no one will help me. The moment the water stirred, everyone else goes in and they leave me laying over here. Isn't it interesting how easy it is to play the victim? And yet our God wants to change our perspective. He wants us to look not as the victim, but as the victor through him. 
My next idea that I have on your outline today speaks directly into it, and it's this. That when we view life from a different angle, it changes our perspective. And sometimes we need to view Scripture from a different angle so that God can change our perspective. When we look at it from another perspective, from another angle, God helps us to learn the lessons that he wants us to learn from the text. And so for me, instead of seeing this man as a victim, God allowed me to see what it might have been like to be in his circumstance. I mean, for a second, picture the scene for a second. This man in the midst of a multitude of invalids is laying around this pool. They're all waiting with bated breath for that water to start to stir. And although they all had community, imagine how that community was thrown out the door the moment that water stirred. When it was every man or woman for themselves, get out of my way, claws are coming out, I'm getting in that water. But then there's this man who couldn't move. He could see it. He could see the water stirring, but he couldn't move. How hard it must have been for him to be there in that moment to see the opportunity, but not being able to seize the opportunity. In the same way for you and for me, sometimes it's really easy to see the change that we want to see in someone else's life, but so hard to get them to that place. Maybe for you it's in your marriage. It's so easy for us to see all the ways that our spouses need to change, but it's so hard for us to actually change them. Maybe it's with your kids, whether they're in your home or adults. And you see these little things. If only they'd make this one change, their life would be forever different. But we can't change them. Maybe it's in your extended family and you see how your brother or your sister live. And you're like, if they just gave their life to Jesus, if they stopped drinking or whatever it is, that one little change, everything would be different in their family tree. Maybe for you it's at your workplace. And you look at your coworkers and you say, man, if those people would work just a little bit harder, imagine what we could do together. It's so easy to see the change in someone else's life, but it's so hard to carry it out in our own lives. And when we see those areas of change that we'd love to see in other people's lives, we can't do it, but we can bring them to the foot of the cross. And what I mean by that is when God is stirring in you that desire for change in someone else, instead of trying to handle it on your own, you have the greatest power Every single one of us do. And it's the power of prayer. And when you want to change someone, instead of trying to do it on your own, just come before God and say, God, I give you my kids. I give you my spouse. I give you whatever it is. God, will you work in their hearts and in your lives? And it's amazing how you will see God answer that prayer in tremendous ways in his timing. Look at verse 8. Jesus said to the man, here's where it all comes together, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. This is a powerful moment right here. This man who for 38 years had stayed in the same spot. And what does verse 9 says? It says that at once the man was healed. He took up his mat and walked. So my question for you is, when was he healed? Was he healed when he stood up? Was he healed when he picked up the mat? Was he healed when he walked away? At what moment was that man healed? As I prayed about it, and I can't say exactly where it is, but where I prayed about it is I believe that man was healed in the moment that he took Jesus at his word. The moment that he believed Jesus could do exactly what Jesus said he could do like that. He was healed. 
See, it's interesting that our God is a promise keeper, not a promise breaker. It's a lesson that we've talked about week after week after week this summer. That we can, this isn't some prosperity gospel thing, this is biblical truth. That we can hold our God to his promises because he doesn't break his promises in his way and his purpose. So maybe our God is stretching your faith today in such a way that he's saying, believe me. Believe what I say in my word and let me change your heart and let me change your life and let me heal you. See, here's the thing that I find that is so significant here is that man spent 38 years watching that water, watching, hoping, praying, only for the true living water to come out of left field right towards him and lay down his hand and say, pick up your mat and walk. Today, in your life, in what area of your life, in your deepest need, do you need Jesus to work? And do you believe that he actually will? See, here's the thing. We could stop right here and, and we could put a pretty little bow on the sermon and, and we could all leave and say, wow, this guy in Jesus' day was healed. Woohoo! Feel good about ourselves and never be changed. But see, Jesus didn't come just to heal this man. He absolutely did and he changed this man's life. But he was using this man as an illustration to a bigger struggle, to a bigger issue which was the religious leaders. And so check out the last part part of verse 9 and listen to what it says. It says that now that day, the day that Jesus healed them, was the Sabbath. And with a 2018 perspective, it's really easy for us to look and say, well, the Sabbath, whatever, it's just another day. For that's how we treat it. If our kids have a baseball game, we'll miss out on church every single week because we don't want them to miss out on baseball. If we have something that we're behind in at work, we certainly will go into work or or work from home because, well, work is important. Sabbath, well, there'll be another one at some point. We have stuff at home that we want to do. We'll work and do all kinds of stuff because the Sabbath to us doesn't have the significance that it did in Jesus' day. But in Jesus' day, the Sabbath was literally a capital offense. It was of life and death importance. We don't have time to read it, but in Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 through 36, we read about a man who was caught literally picking up sticks, kindling for a fire. And as a result of him bending down and exerting energy and picking it up, that man was drugged to Moses and Aaron, and he literally was stoned to death for breaking the rules and regulations of the Sabbath. There were rabbis in Jesus' day that literally held it as a sin if a man was to walk around with a needle in their robe. For these men viewed the Sabbath of the utmost and highest importance. For they cared more about it religiously than they did relationally. Listen to what it says in verse 10. Verse 10 says, so the Jews, and this would be the Jewish leaders, said to the man who had been healed, it is Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. For this man, it was unlawful for him um, to be able to have picked up his mat. And the thing that I thought of as I was studying this is why didn't Jesus just tell him to get up and walk away? Why didn't Jesus just heal him and allow him to leave without creating any trouble? For Jesus wanted to take and not just handle this man's issue, but he wanted to handle this religious issue and get people's attention. Listen to verse 11. It says, But he answered him, the man that was healed. He said, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. 
As I picture the scene there, I picture this man who's laid there for 38 years, never changing, always looking at that water. And I picture him a little bit giddy, a little bit excited, like, I was healed! And yet he's being questioned. He's being asked, who told you? Who told you to pick up that mat? And I picture him as he says innocently, well, the man, that man who healed me told me to pick up my mat and walk. So you have to understand that this man that was healed, he would have also known the Sabbath instructions. Even though he had laid there for 38 years, culturally everybody knew the significance of the Sabbath. But if you had lived there, if you had laid there for 38 years, do you think that you would overlook the regulations of man so that your life could be forever changed? Because that's what this man did. Look at verse 12. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? No, the man who had healed him did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in this place. A few verses later, we read how Jesus does come up to the man and tell him to sin no more. But something that I don't want you to miss as we look at the text today, do you notice that not one time do those religious leaders ever acknowledge, ever acknowledge that this man had been healed? No, they were more worried about their regulations. They were more worried about the mat being picked up than the fact that this man's life had been forever changed. And that's where my last point on your outline today comes from, and it's this. It's so easy to be religious, but yet so hard to be Christ-like. It's so easy to be religious, but yet so hard to be Christ-like. Do you see the contrast of what's going on here? Jesus saw who this man could become. Religious people saw who this man was. Jesus looked beyond the regulations of the day so that he could get to the man's heart. The religious people put the regulations and rules that they had in the way of impacting someone's life. For religious people are more worried about the law and legalism. And Jesus came to abolish the law and to fill this world with his grace. So let me ask you, why is it so easy for religious people to get so wrapped up in being right that we miss out on what God is doing and how he's working? See, don't get me wrong. I'm all for being doctrinally correct and making sure that whatever is taught, whatever is spoken, matches up with the true context and understanding of God's word. But I don't want to be caught up in making sure that we split spiritual hairs so much that we miss out on the greatness of who our God is. Because I truly believe that as Christians in 2018, we've put our God in this comfortable little box that we can understand and that we can explain because it's the only way that we can wrap our mind around who he is. But our God can't be put in, our bo- in a box. Our God came in the form of Jesus to break apart all of the regulations, all of the rules that man created so that we can have a true relationship with him. For religion creates crazy systems that take away the heart of God, that grind on God's people. Think of the Sabbath. And those systems weren't just working in Jesus' day. In the same way, I truly believe that the religious systems we have today aren't working. Because religiously, religiously we get stuck in our way. We get stuck in our comfort zone, our desires, our view of the way that church should be. And as a result of us being so religious in our viewpoint, we're missing the fact that there's a lost and dying world driving up and down this street every moment that we've been sitting here. 
But because we religiously desire our own traditions, because we religiously desire our own expectations, we're not willing to relationally get away from our comfort zone to walk to those people, to lay down our hand, to help them pick up their mat and lead them to Jesus. See, when we look at it from the viewpoint of a religious person, a religious person might look at some of you here today and miss how, hard, how far you've come to get here in this place. A religious person might look at someone in this room and view your tough exterior and not realize the hard choices and the bangs of life that you've gone through to get to this place. A religious person might look at the perfection they demand in your life without ever acknowledging the fact that they're not even close to it in their lives. A religious person will gladly put a scarlet letter on another person's sin without acknowledging the fact that they keep going back to their own favorite sin time after time after time. The religious person will look at all the standards, will look at the law and everything in God's word, and will be so dogmatic about it that they miss out on the grace that Jesus preached in each one of our lives. Look back at verse 6. It says, do you want to be healed? And today, can I be so bold as to add one little part to that? Do you want to be healed of being religious? Because there are some of you here today that are really good at being religious, but you're terrible at being Christ-like. And I know that might sound judgmental. I may know that might even be awkward for you. But that's not my words. That's the Holy Spirit that is hitting you right between the eyes. Because as the Holy Spirit is stirring in some of you today, he's telling you that you are more religious than you are relational with him. That you're good at judging others, but you're not very good at loving others. That you're good at talking about spiritual things, but you're terrible at living it out. That you're really good at manipulating and controlling. But you're not good at having a contrite and a humble heart. Friend, there is no power in religion. There is only power in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And the more you do religion, the more you do things religiously void of a relationship with Jesus, the more you look like those leaders in that man's day that were more worried about the fact he picked up his mat than the fact he was healed. Are you religious or do you have a true relationship with Jesus? Has your true relationship with Jesus been lost in the religious traditions and expectations that you have for yourself and you have for your church? Because the religious system isn't working. Because it's not religion. It's a relationship. Let me bring us all the way back to the beginning. The first idea that I shared is the company we keep can define who we become. If you spend your time around religious people, your mindset and your worldview will become more and more religious, void of the joy and grace of Jesus Christ. We can come to church and feel better and never get well. If you go through religion of just coming here, raising your hands, oh, praise the Lord, but not allowing the Holy Spirit to make you uncomfortable in such a way that results in life change, you're no different than those religious people of the day. See, when we allow God to take and transform our perspective. When we allow God to let us look at life from a different angle, God changes our perspective of being a religious person to one who desires a deep, meaningful relationship with him. And finally, it's easy to be religious 
but it's hard to be Christ-like. Are you more religious or are you more Christ-like? That's for the Holy Spirit to reveal to you. Will you join me in prayer? God, I know this week and the time that I was wrestling with you and and this message, so uh, humbling to have to share in front of so many of God the ways that I have a religious viewpoint rather than a relational viewpoint. And God, even as I stand here in the midst of so many of my friends, I don't have the words, but you do. God, in the silence of this place through your Holy Spirit, will you stir? Will you speak into people's situation and lives? Reveal to them areas of their lives where they're more religious. Reveal to them areas of their lives, God, where they've allowed their circumstances to define who they are. God, reveal areas of our lives where, God, we're not changing. God, convict those of us that are here that are going through cultural Christianity, that have gone months, years, decades without changing. Convict us, Father. Holy Spirit, you tell us. You tell us how we're supposed to go from here. You tell us how you're going to change us. And Father, may we be a willing vessel. Jesus, pour yourself out. Pour yourself out on every single one of us and make us more like you. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen.